KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Lano. This is the Henry George Program, show all about policy, politics, and land. Today's program, we have on a very interesting guest. It is Colin Drum. He is a monetary historian, the author of a very interesting thesis all about the history and theory of money, sovereignty, legitimacy. And today in the show, we are talking about money. We start off talking about inflation, how housing affects inflation, inflation metrics, and more, and get into some uh, much broader issues about volatility, monetary theory, radical organizing, and much more. So without further ado, uh, yeah, let's just get into it. So, uh, so Colin, thank you so much for making time to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we, uh, I guess, the, the kind of, to bring you on came out of uh, just a thread on Twitter. We were both talking about some, like, very boring stuff. Uh, but relevant to a lot of discussions, which is just in the scope of inflation. Everyone's talking about inflation. Uh, how does housing figure into CPI, and how does the BLS, you know, account for housing through its m- methods? Uh, and this is something I've always wanted to master, or at least kind of make myself slightly less ignorant. There's documents out there, but they're very, very long and boring. And you jumped in to say that you were looking in yourself. It's like. Oh, you know, that'd be you know interesting to get into. I worry in a lot broader stuff, but just to start, you know, just talk a little bit about inflation and housing. Yeah, good. So, I mean, we begin by saying that you you mentioned the BLS, but there's actually there's two competing uh, measures of inflation produced by different agencies. So, one is produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and the other is produced by the Bureau of Economic Accounting. Um, and they've they've switched between them um, recently. I mean, I don't I don't know all the details of that, but I but I think it's 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 good to begin just just by kind of observing that you know inflation is not something out there in the world that you can go observe. It's they're they're measures that are produced you know by fairly large bureaucratic agencies, and and there might actually be competing agencies. Um, within the, the 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 state and and other agencies right so we have you know we have the BEA we have the BLS and and we have the Federal Reserve which is um, a, a government agency of a kind whether we're going to call it that or not opens up another can of worms um, but there's also the central bank and the central bank has to decide you know which of these measures it's going to use and 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 there's all kinds of other you know within each agency's measure there's there's different ones that you know there's core inflation headline inflation and and, and some of the differences between these have to do with 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 the extent to which they they break out more volatile commodities um, like food and energy. So food and energy are often more volatile. Um, they change a lot more rapidly than other things, and so and so there's some debate about whether you should include them or not for the for the measure that really matters, right? So so we'll we'll, we'll talk more about volatility. Yeah. As we go on. Aren't there all, like like so the, the main CPI is supposed to be a basket of consumption goods, but isn't there like other measures which are pure asset inflation measures? I, I just know there's this whole like cornucopia of, of stuff out there. And I don't really not, know. Not to my knowledge with the assets. Maybe there is. I thought I've I heard mean, about something, but I mean, uh, it, it, it could there's, be. I mean, not, someone not can knowledge. just create their own index. You know, people can do whatever. Right. Yeah, I'm sure there's some something out there that is an index of asset values. But but as far as you know, you're talking about these competing inflation measures, the CPI versus, you know, the non-BLS, uh, like this, uh, has the Fed switched between them two or they've always been CPI or what? Yeah, they no they did. They switched from the BLS measure to the BEA measure. And I can't 
tell you much of the details about why that is. I'd have to, I'd have to look into it more. It's not what I, yeah, it's not what I, not what I found out this month. I but, mean, I but, mean, go but but as far as the two different flavors of inflation indexing, what 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 would be your broad like your description of what's different between the two? I, I I'm not even. They're fairly small technical differences. I don't I don't know that the so they both the, are the, like the, consumption basket e. Yeah. Well, I, I well I guess okay. So I mean the the main way to understand it I think is that the BLS measure is more of a consumer's measure. It's it's designed to represent the consumption basket of an urban consumer. Hmm. Um, whereas the BEA measure is a little bit more of a, of a man. It's, it's more of a measure from a business perspective, from a business eye view. They treat imports. They treat the foreign sector differently in a, in a way that I'm not sure I could tell you off the top of my head. Um, but there's, there's so, so there's something also in there about whether or not they, I think it's that the BEA measure doesn't count imports because because that's not relevant to the question of what can, you know, what are the prices that U.S. businesses are getting for their goods, um, whereas the the BLS measure does include imports. I, I hope that's correct. Um, that's what I remember. Yeah. So, so here is a quote from, this is the BLS one, so this isn't relevant exactly to the one that's being used by the Fed, but it, it's a, a, a frequently asked questions. Why doesn't the CPI housing survey collect rents every month from each sampled housing unit? In response is, rents tend to change much less often than the prices of most consumption items. And I'll say off the bat, that's like, they're saying it very definitively. That's simply not true a lot of places. Yeah, right. So so again, I mean, here's the question of, of volatility and the political stakes of volatility, which yeah. I'll... I'll say more about once we get past the little thing that I want to, that I want to, so I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and I want to, I want to lay this problem on the board. So, so okay. the, the, you know, the thing that kind of sparked this conversation um, was in part the question of housing. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and the question, so, so there's a category in, I think it's the same. I think it's in both of the measures, you know, that it's, it's called shelter and, and one of these things is rent. Right. And, and obviously, I mean, that is, I mean, God, I was a grad student in California and more than 100% of my income went to rent. Right. So, I mean, I mean, rent is, is, is a huge part of, of the cost of living. So obviously, um, and and it's, and I've I've seen people sometimes saying it's not count. No, it's, it's, it's like 40%. It's like 43%, I think of the CPI basket. Right. So, so they're, they're perfectly aware that rent matters. Um, You know, now the question, you know, whether their statistics are updated, uh, quickly enough, you know, maybe maybe their measure of rent is not reflecting the rents on the ground and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I mean that is important and it matters, but in a way, it is a little bit of a red herring from understanding what is truly scandalous about the way that we measure accounting, uh, which is the, the problem of owner's equivalent rent. Which yeah. So so the owner's equivalent rent. So so prior to 1983. So this was changed in 1983, which the, the timing of this matters, right? Because, well, this is this is the immediate aftermath of the resolution of the crisis of the 70s by Paul Volcker, um, um, who, of course, hiked interest rates uh, in the early 80s and set off, you know, debt crises in the emerging world. He, he tamed inflation, victims be damned, you know. That's, that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so um, you know, so in some ways, an, an opposite moment from the one that we're in now, right, the the, the moment now is this moment of like permanently low interest rates and, you know, and, and, and so it's a very different environment, right? Volcker hiked rates 
like maybe even the double digits. I don't know exactly. But but this is important because this is the beginning of the era of monetary policy governance that we that our lives have taken shape in. Right. I was I was born in 1988. So, um, you know, so 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 this is really this is what happened, you know, just before my life began that set the set the terms for that. And 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 this matters because, you know, the the orthodoxy of the econ department, somebody put this on Twitter uh, yesterday or the day before, I thought that was really, a really great way to put it, right? The, the theory of inflation is sacred to economists um, because, because, it, because the old theory, the theory that had kind of governed the way that policy was made from 1945 until, in, until the, the Volcker era, was was kind of disproven by the crisis of the 70s which was you know there was supposed to be you know you're supposed to be able to use inflation in order to create growth and so yeah. the, you know the the solution to economic stagnation was to, to create some inflation and and well okay but what happens you know the the the, the machine breaks because we have stagflation we have economic stagnation plus inflation and and so the new orthodoxy emerged out of the out of the wreckage of of the previous one about the issue of inflation and and so the theory of inflation is is sacred or is foundational to the discourse in that in that sense so so okay so so you know so along with this change in 1983 they changed the way that they measured the cost of housing in the inflation index this i think matters a lot um before 1983 they have to make a basket for how much housing costs. And well, if you start thinking about that, the first thing that you're going to realize is that, well, there's two ways that you can have access to housing. Either you own your house or you rent your house. And and the the pre-1983 measure kind of kind of you know treated, you know, kind of it, it put them together. So 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 you know either the cost of renting the house that went into the measure or the cost of buying a house went into the measure and they kind of lumped them together. It, it, apparently there was just something published came out uh, uh, last week or somebody, I mean, obviously inflation is a hot topic. Everybody's been thinking about this. The rent's too damn high. Um, you know, it seems that nobody really quite knows how exactly it was calculated before 1983. Like if you, like there's no, there's easy- a bunch of boring documents just outlining yeah, the procedure. That's, I mean, I don't, that's what the article that I read saw. So they, they had, they, they reconstructed it. And their reconstruction of the pre-1983 index didn't match up exactly to the to huh. the actual historical data. So was it close? It was close. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it was it was close. I mean, they, you know, they they, but it wasn't exact. You know, there were definitely some divergences. So huh. so so whether it's whether it's lost in the bowels of of some agency someplace or whether it went down the memory hole is hard to say. But but apparently there's some. There's some work for an archivist there to even to even figure out exactly how they calculated it. Um, so, so I, I think I first heard about this years ago. Mason Gaffney wrote an article talking about like denying inflation, the how and why, and mm-hmm. it talked about in 1983 the BLS changed the owner equivalent rent. And the way he described it, and I, I think I got tripped up on this. He made it sound like it is a voluntary survey to to property owners to say if your house were to be rented out how much would it be rented for mm-hmm. and uh and that sounds to me like i, I th- kind of took it like wow it's just a voluntary survey about this kind of specious estimate and i've heard people say no it's not it's not like that you don't just ask people you actually use data so so clear up for me like 
what what is this survey what is actual data what is uh, living in people's brains yeah i mean i found the same thing there's there's places where it says they do that jw mason on twitter you know said like oh they don't do it like that and uh-huh. I, I try to look into more and i'm still a bit confused well i you know when i was digging through jstor a couple weeks ago when i was looking into this i got led down this rabbit hole thinking about an unrelated problem and i and i started looking at this stuff. you know i've i've found some essays where they have kind of fancy data ways of of figuring out what the imputed rent should be i mean yeah. I, I mean i mean i think they do these kind of surveys and that's like a piece of the puzzle but like that it's not just that simple right they do some fancy stuff to it that now and and of course and none of us who aren't professional economists are allowed to even understand what it is they do. So that so 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 we just have to take it on faith that it can't possibly be that naive, right? They they have to have a better way of doing it. And I don't I don't know about the details of that. And 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 part of what I came here today to say is that we don't need to know the details and we actually don't need to engage with people like J.W. Mason on the grounds of that debate. That's that's the terrain that he wants us to have this argument. And, and you know, for, you know, Mason is about as left as as a professional economist gets. Uh, but I think that we can we can be further to the left of that. And 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 that involves being a little bit more skeptical about um about about the construction of, of economic aggregates and but 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 we don't even have to get there right so 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 let's let's grant him this point for the sake of argument that yeah okay so they 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 calculate the owner's imputed rent in some kind of way that's more sophisticated it's not just a survey like okay granted right? yeah um because there's a deeper problem but I, but I think we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves which is which is even saying what the owner's imputed rent is right um, yeah i'll take one step back too which is just to say i mean there's a kind of clearer question also which is just this is a national estimate of something called housing and like we have a weird you know nation it's a whole like a weird world but like within the nation there are places where housing is not that bad and places where it's very and what do you do just cut the difference like that's well well, yeah well well again you know i mean i mean this is this is the line of argument that the that the Let's the the progressive economists, right? The, what do the progressive economists want? They want to save economics as a discourse. They want to say, no, no, economics is still a legitimate discourse. It's just that the other economists who aren't us weren't doing it right. We're better than them. We have all of this fancy stuff. So all of your critiques of economics, of the dumb stuff that the neoclassicals do or whatever, that doesn't apply to us. So So there's kind of this... Um, that's, it's ref- that's reformed economics. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so you know, so so here again, I mean, I mean, they can respond to that. Look, I mean, there's you can look it up. You can they they calculate different inflation rates for different metros. They have right? the Case-Shiller I mean, index for every major metro, and I, I, yeah. I, I have I have more confidence in that than whatever they're doing the OER. I think, right. yeah. <laughs> but like yeah. it's so, still. So they can do that, you know, and 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 like. You know, so uh, Alex Williams, who goes by Vabe on, yeah. on Twitter, um, you know, who I think is one of the he's the most literate Keynesian, I would say. You know, he's got a little Deleuze under his belt. He's, 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 he's a true crazed genius. He's, he's yeah, great. I, I really I really respect him. We don't see eye to eye on everything. But I, but I think as far as like this crowd of like the progressive they're not neo neo Keynesians is already a thing that they aren't, but whatever that whatever it is they yeah, are. I call like they're the the galaxy brain post Keynesians. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's right. The galaxy brain PK people. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, he's aware that that this is an issue, and 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 his response to this is, well, we should just have lots of met indices, right? You know, I mean, let's just 
let let it let a let a let a hundred indices bloom and and we'll just and 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 so they they can meet you on that terrain right they can say yeah i mean i mean yeah you know when we talk about on the news we talk about the rate of inflation well, you know, yeah, but that's just the news, you know, like in the serious halls of power where the serious people are doing serious things like we know, you know, we already know we've we've disaggregated the data like that's not a problem. Right. So but it still comes down to it like, OK, sure, you have more data. Now we're much more nuanced, but like people are still making decisions. Someone is still at the, you know, the Fed factory pulling the lever one way or the right. other. And, you know, that's all they do is pull that one lever. Yeah. And like, what what happens? I don't, I mean, and I'm not really convinced having more indices is going to make yeah. this any more tractable. Right, right. I mean, so I'm, I agree, you know, I mean, I, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, among these kind of, you know, progressive reformists and, and we want the same thing, you know, I'd, I'd love to have these people in power instead of all the other people, you know, I mean, we could, we could do worse than them, but, but, you know, but the problem is, I think that over the, you know, or since 2008, which, which would be for like most of my adult life, you know, it, the Fed has come to seem more and more like the only functional institution in American government. Um, yeah. And it and it and it kind of seems all powerful, and so and so we're 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 thinking about how to govern through monetary policy, which which to me is kind of a fool's errand. Like I don't, you know, it's it's kind of you know the way that I often think about it is it's you know I don't know if you know if people have ever gotten their like truck stuck in the sand or something like that, but it doesn't it doesn't matter whether you put it forward or put it in reverse, you're still going to be stuck in the sand, you know. Yeah. So it could be the so best I, driver in the world, but you know, yeah. the, the, the most skilled. And I'm very impressed by the core competence in the Fed in doing stuff, but they really it's like they they are extremely limited in their tool set and like right. it and it speaks to their relationship with power. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, and it's just I mean I I as you know as a political thinker, I I think that what we need to reclaim is is some notion of of executive power that actually can do things right i mean so so mon monetary policy is is really just it's a very blunt instrument for governance and so and so when you have these kinds of people who are you know they're all they you know they're really they don't want the fed to raise rates right now of course it's insane for the fed to raise rates like the idea that you're going to fight inflation by raising monetary policy rates is just insane this yeah. is this is the monetarist thing monetarist thing but of course you know there's inflation because there's a plague <laughs> and and like there's climate change and there's a society that is like a death cult that is falling apart. I mean, I mean, like there's there's all these other reasons for why inflation is happening that are not going to be addressed at all. And and they're right about this. But yeah. the but the problem is that in in their political advocacy to to be monetary policy does, they then have to sort of downplay poo-poo the the role of monetary policy in creating asset inflation, which which to me is like the story of my again the story of my adult life. That's what I've watched happen. Yeah, since it's, it's a crazy dilemma in which it's like, yeah, you can't let the austerians win. Yeah. So let's just pretend we're on the good. I mean, it's it's like yeah. willful neglect as a good. I mean, it's 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 analogous to I see it so dispiritingly. We talk about like homelessness and like there is the arch right wing response, which is throw them in jail, like sweep the streets. And then it's like, it's like, oh, what's a progressive response? Oh, don't do that. It's like, well, 
we need to go a lot more than just don't arrest them. <laughs> like we, right. like, it is a crime to have people homeless like this. Yeah. Like yeah. And we, it's a moral weight on us. We need to fix and like just not arresting them is going to fix it. And the same thing, like, like we are, we're, they're not saying, oh, we need to pull the lever a bit more. They're kind of scared to. They they know it's going to create more asset inflation. Yeah. And so and so they, you know, keep the Fed from doing this thing that's going to be a huge disaster. But but that ends up being a kind of advocacy for the status quo, um, which is which is, an, you know, which is I've, I've been living through it for a while. I'm a little sick of it. So, yeah. Well, OK, so do we do like do any more about the OER kind of? Yeah, or, or yeah, talk, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I we're mean, not done with that yet. We're not done with this. So so. So, okay. So, so to, to circle back, I mean, I mean, so obviously there's a problem, right? I mean, we've got this one little like policy lever. It's the only thing in the American government that works. Um, and, and we're somehow going to like create these aggregates. That's going to tell us like how much growth is there? How much inflation is there? You know, what does that tell us that we should set the lever to? And like, that's the debate that we're having now there's, all kinds of different problems, which is like, okay, so maybe there's like local stuff, you know, I mean, um, but, you know, but, but they know that. So, so what I want to, what I want to put on the table is, is, is a thing that I don't think that this, the progressive PK gambit will work on, right? That, yeah, we know already that. And, and it, and it's this. So, so the, you know, so after 1983, um, they, they stopped putting the price of, of, of basically buying a house in the inflation index. Now, constructing a new house still goes in the index is my understanding. So, hmm. so constructing a new house um, or renting a house, is to, to the best of my understanding, are counted for both growth and inflation. But, but, uh, but buying and selling houses that already exist is not counted for, for either one. It doesn't count as either growth or inflation. Now, to the extent that the real estate market is very active, it kind of shows up as growth in the, in, for the realtors, right? So the realtors get income from that and like that's growth, but the, but the asset side is is not right so so if you buy a house and it doubles in money over five years or whatever that is not counted anywhere in terms of growth or inflation it's 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 an it's a not entity so and and that's because of the changes that were made in 1983 when when basically the um you know they said well this measuring inflation in this way is causing us all kinds of problems so we're going to fix it and and the way that we're going to fix it is again to imagine that when you own a house we're going to kind of dis we're going to cut that house apart conceptually and and we're going to say well there's 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 the the capital good part of it which is like building the house there's this kind of asset part of it that's like the appreciation you might get from owning the house but there's also a stream of consumption services which is the the value that you get from the fact that you live in the house yeah. <laughs> right and and so we're going to imagine that you rent your house to yourself sure. and okay so so how do we determine what the value of it is well maybe there's the survey maybe there's not whatever let's 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 see the point to mason on that one so but but there's a deeper question here so so why is that why does that make sense what this is saying is that if you own a house and the price of rent in your neighborhood goes up your cost of living goes up now obviously that's just 
on the face of it, not true because you don't have to pay any more money. You already bought the house. So, so you're how you're, you know, so, so you so your cost of living is not going up. So, so, but the, but if you go read the, the literature on this, the, the accountants will say, no, no, this makes perfect sense. Why does it make perfect sense? Well, let's do a thought experiment. All right, so this this is this is what I want to do. It's the thought experiment that I want that I want to get to because I think okay. this this is where the economists can't play their games, right? I mean, like this this is the thought experiment that justifies the accounting, and and now now we're in the philosophical swamp, and 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 that's where we're going to win, which is which is that, is that they, the accountants say, okay, imagine this. Imagine there's two families and they own their own houses and they live in them. Okay, now imagine. That those two families swap houses. Yeah, I knew where this is going. Sure. <laughs> this is yeah. This is what they say. So imagine that these two families swap houses, and they rent to each other. Yeah. Now, nothing has changed in terms of what? Well, in terms of what we're trying to measure, which is the size of the economy, right? The so- you know the amount of goods and services that are being produced, but. If you don't count things in this way, then when the two families swap houses, GDP is going to go up. GDP is going to go up by two times the rent that they're charging, right? And that would not make sense. So why would it be that if the two families swap, GDP goes up? Well, GDP, they say, should remain unchanged across these two scenarios because there's the same amount of goods and services in the economy, right? Okay, yeah. so this this is what I want to ask you. What's wrong with that story? We can pick that story apart, but I want to, I want to, I have an answer. Before I just tell the answer, I want, I want you to think about it so your audience can kind of think about it too. Like, because it seems kind of persuasive at first, at first glance, but if we think about it and we think about what it's missing, I think that leads us in some interesting directions. So what do you, what do you think? I mean, what's, how would you I mean, my, this story? My instinct, I mean, I think, you know, as as a good Georgist and everything, I am a hardliner on imputed rents, which is just always like it is turning away from use value pastoralism to say we live in a society. You know, the idea in like it's very persuasive to say, OK, every day I, I, I drink eight cups of water. You know, it's that's the same. But if there's if there's people dying of, you know, of, of a lack of water or drought outside and if, if you're still swimming in a pool, it's very different to swim in a pool as a guy's dying of water outside. And if you swim in a pool and everything's normal uh-huh. and even though it's the same pool, it's the same swimming. And I would say the same thing, which is just like if you live in a house in a neighborhood and everything is nice and quaint and everything is, is pat, the fact that rents are going up a block and a half away does in some metaphysical sense mean that you are luckier to live in that same house, even if you don't really care. But it has to do with the fact there is two different things here. One is you're just a guy living in the house. Another one is you're living in a society where really you need to be able to swap places with different stations of society to make it fair. And it's very easy to say like, oh, I'm just a normal guy, but you need to be fair to people living around you. And I mean, and to go back to that same question, yeah, I think at any point in a society, you do need to say, yeah, if we go to the market and swap it out, we should be kind of fair about it. You know, if, if it's like, oh, I have a family heirloom and if the family heirloom is worth a billion dollars, it doesn't matter. It's sentimental. 
the market value means something. And of course, the market value can be all sorts of screwed up. And that's the thing, too. Like, it's I don't want to be like, a, you know, kind of the Austrian mindset of like, oh, the market is the truth. But there's something about the idea that you have to like you have to play well with others. And I guess that's that's the reason why I do find it persuasive, I guess. Right. Right. Well, I guess I would say that in what you've just said, there's two potentially different things that are kind of mixed up. Sure. One, one of them is a is a is a normative argument or a moral argument about about fairness or something like that. Yeah. Now, what I would suggest, I mean, I I share those sentiments, but we can we can be ruthless and we can we can throw that out the window. So so we can say actually, you know, who, forget about morality. All right. There's a there's a conceptual issue with accounting that is actually being lost. But why so, are we accounting? Like, I, I think accounting is a moral argument, really. Well, we, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But Absolutely. Let's, 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 again, yeah, let's, well, let's, let's let you finish your thought. Let's so so let's so let's just accept for for the sake of argument that that we don't care about morality. We just care about getting the accounting right. Now, yeah. I, I think that so let's go back to what you said about the pool. Yeah. All right. So, so you're imagining that you have a pool, and presumably, you know, your 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 pool doesn't have isn't full of chlorine or or whatever. So sure, it's, it's all so drinkable. Imagine, yeah, yeah, your pool your pool can be, can be. So, what changes when there is a a person, a thirsty person outside your gate about your pool? There's something that changes, even if we don't give a about morality. And I would say, what changes is this. Uh, I would say what changes is for me to enjoy the pool means that there is a certain property right or usage right I have, which is the usage right to get a stream of water. And that is bestowed upon by, let's just say, the, the water lord. And the water lord, you know, gives me the water. And for some reason, in this scenario, like I'm locked into a fixed you know, pool allotment. It's kind of like Prop 13. And it's a lot like actual water rights in California, how screwed up they are. Uh, but, and I think the thing is, in the first place, the property right is, it is more or less, you can follow procedurally. In California, water rights, is like if you get first claim, you get that water forever. That's the rule, follow it. But there's a certain kind of underlying basis, which is, I mean, you call it the lock-in proviso in the kind of you know, classical sense. You can get this right as long as there's enough that it's fair for everyone else. So I would say the property yeah. right itself is undergirded by a kind of claim to fairness. So yeah, that, but you're getting into the normative stuff again. Absolutely, we, we can, I, I'd say uh, that's what you're, no, that's we gotta, the only thing. We got we to be we got to be simpler than this. We can sure, be, I, we got to be evil for a second. Let's be evil for a second. Just come with me to the dark side for just a second. Well, so you told me to be an end cap and say that oh the, yeah. you know, the the contract is it. Nothing changed. Yeah. I have the contract yeah, yeah. and yeah, and come, I'm going to laugh all the way come, the bank. Come come with me to the embrace evil for just a moment. Sure, just sure, sure. Experiment. So so let's assume that we're evil. There's something that changes about your pool. When there's the thirsty guy outside on the sidewalk and what changes is the value of your pool. Okay. How much is it worth? Yeah. Well, if that guy is out there dying of thirst, you can sell him the water. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess in this property claim, I always have the option to sell. And just like Prop 13, right. it is not yeah. like it is not like it's some, uh, you know, yeah. little like you can live here if you want. They always have the option to sell. Yeah, you have the option to you have the option to let him die if he doesn't meet your price. You have to, yeah. that's that's just what we call a negotiation. So so okay, so so, so in this sense, what changes? I got luckier. 
No, what changes is the dollar value of your pool. Well, yeah, how but much, I got like your phone I can make out of it. But yeah. Yeah. But 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 the question is how much is it worth in in dollars, okay? This this matters for 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 our point. Okay. Which is which is you know, if that guy is not out there, you know, say say, you know, say we're not only evil but we're Nazis and we just kill all the people who don't have their own pools. What's what's the money value of your water stream now? It's actually zero. Right? Yeah. So it's actually worth nothing because everybody has it because we killed everybody who didn't have it. So, sure. So so the fact that your pool, your stream of water resources has a monetary value depends upon the fact that other people don't have it. Yeah, I mean, okay. I guess it's in a lot of ways, the property value is really about how much you can coerce out of others yes. in exchange. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that is what makes rent that. So now let's ask the same thing. If if you lived in a society where everybody had a house already, what's the value of your house? It's the Zero. value that someone would, oh, someone might want a second vacation Yeah, well, they home. might want a second, say, well, I want a second house yeah. or whatever, right? But And then also people might say, oh, I don't really care that much. I might want to just live on a bench. But most most people would be kind of yeah. happy to have one right. house. Yeah, so 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 the value of your, of housing as a, as a capital good is related in some way right this might there's other issues here which is like the the you know there's there's value to rent ratios and stuff and those are not constant and there's a whole other issue right but the but but to the extent that you're investing in you know what they you know if, if you ever if you ever drive through the red states and you listen to talk radio as i do sometimes you oh know, i you, love, love you might listen to right wing radio yeah it's, you it's, might it's, you it's, might hear those guys you know it's not rush limbaugh or whatever you know those other guys like him they're like invest in multifamily housing right that's the, that that's a big message that i've heard them say a lot and 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 what that you know you're, you're buying apartment buildings and and you're renting it to poor people and well what would be the value of that asset if there weren't people who needed to pay rent or have a place to live well there wouldn't be any value okay so yeah. so the point that i'm trying to make here is that the value of real estate assets housing at not as not as this imaginary thing where i'm renting it to myself but where i'm actually renting it to other people the value of that goes up the more other people don't also own their own houses the right? majority of housing wealth is really the zero sum fight yes yeah yes yes exactly so <laughs> yeah. so so okay so now with that realization in mind right yeah let's go back to the question of owners equivalent rent sure so we have the thought experiment there's two families they live in their houses they're consuming the service they swap they live in each other's houses they charge each other rent that shouldn't make gdp go up say the accountants. So therefore, in order to make this all make sense, we need to have imputed rent. We need to imagine that they're renting. Now, what is invariant across those two scenarios? There's something that doesn't change across those two scenarios. And what doesn't change is the degree of social inequality, right? Yeah, the yeah. The inequality in society is exactly the same in both of those scenarios. So that didn't change. Yeah. I mean, I guess like the 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 economist mindsets want to imagine that this like housing price is just like this little sensor you like are measuring you know costs going up, but like it is really about someone on the totem pole of housing, you know, I guess instability 
is driving that little sensor up. You know, it doesn't just happen as some, and it's very, like the way we talk about inflation, like when you say, oh, the inflation, it makes it sound like it's like a barometer or something. It's some neutral, you know, it's, it is a sociological measurement. Right. Yeah. So, so, so the, the sleight of hand that's going on under the hood of that thought experiment is the fact that you are assuming away the problem of social inequality yeah. And you are therefore assuming away the fact that the value of housing as an asset is predicated upon the existence of social inequality. Yeah. And 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 you've made that all disappear. So now, so I would, you know, so so this art essay that came out like a couple of days ago, um, um, where somebody else was looking into this, but they had a little bit more of an apologetic framing on it than the one that I have. They were like, they were like, actually, this, you know, this makes sense, right? They talked about the way that the 1983 thing happened, and and they're the ones who reconstructed the measure, like I was telling you about, and 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 they were like, but this makes sense. Now, what's the reason that they said it made sense? Well, the re- the reason is because the new way of measuring inflation is less volatile; it moves around less. <laughs> That's really funny. Right? Yeah. And so and so there's a great quote from that essay that I just love. I mean, this this to me is like this expert discourse. You know, even people who are kind of these progressive reformers still very invested in the in the discourse of expertise. And you know, me, I'm just an English major, you know, I'm just like a guy who likes to read books. I'm not I'm not a social scientist at all. I have a very it's very foreign to the way that I think about things. Um, you know, but but in so they're very confident in their data, but you go look at the stuff that they say, and it's just unbelievably naive, right? So, so, so these guys said, well, before 1983, like the data was volatile in a way that didn't make much sense to much sense to us, and the new data removes that volatility, and so that's great, right? right? Yeah, and, and and for me, I'm like that's the place where the alarm bells go off in my head because because a lot of my work is is about the question of, of how volatility is a political problem, right? I mean, this is one of the things I've been thinking about for a long time. So, so, so if I read these social scientist types go, well, we, we made some cleaner data because we, because we engaged in this, in this counterfactual thought experiment that assumes away social inequality and makes volatility go away. That's when I'm like, Oh, aha. (laughs) Right. And, and, and of course it's important because, you know, we're in the early eighties, we're in the, we're in the trend, the myth, you know, we're in a transition from the United States to a cre- from a creditor to a debtor nation. Um, we're in the, you know, the era of 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 what was once somewhat quaintly called late stage capitalism, right? Which means which means doing things with finance or whatever, right? So 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 why is it less volatile? Well, you've assumed away financial instability, and you've assumed away social inequality, and of course, those two things are the same thing yeah because 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 why do you want why so so the you know the data represents homeowners and renters as being the same members of the same class yeah who who experience the same rate of inflation and who want the same things right well of course that's not the case what why and 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 we have to think about well why would you want to transition from one class to the other if you're renting why would you want to buy a house right That's well because real preference you just not don't <laughs> right, want to be yeah. dictated by a landlord anymore you know yeah, right yeah. yeah yeah well well of course it's, it's because it's because you're anxious about volatility right i mean you you when i buy a house 
I'm now short inflation. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm long inflation. I want there to be inflation. Yeah, in yeah. The sense. So, so if, 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 if rent is 40% of the CPI, if I buy a house, I no longer pay rent. I mean, I have other expenses. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, full disclosure. I mean, I'm a homeowner. I, I own a, a house in the middle of nowhere uh, um, in Southern New Mexico, which might burn down uh, like tomorrow. There's a fire like 30 miles North of me. So hopefully that, I that's volatility a, you're facing. Yeah, a, yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. So hopefully I remain a homeowner past this week, but um, you know, I own a house. I mean, there's all kinds of expenses, you know, people aren't lying when they say, you know, like owning a house is paid, but you know, I mean, you got to spend a lot of money to fix it. I mean, my house is a hundred years old I and mean, there's all kinds of issues. I mean, that, that's but, the, that's kind of societal trade-off. It's like you get this yeah. nice privileged space. We're going to try to make you, we're going to plump you up a bit with this kind of equity growth. That's our whole plan, yeah. but you're going to have to, you know, take care of your lawn and yeah. make sure that you like repair home stuff. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the American dream. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, it's, right. you don't get something for nothing. You have to be a, a, an upstanding member <laughs> yeah. of society. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there, there's a grade of truth in, in that, you know, but, but, you know, but, but why did I do this? Why did I move to the middle of, you know, after spending nine years in California, I was like, screw this, you know, I'm moving to New Mexico. Um, cause I can buy a house here for four months rent. And, I mean, sorry, four years rent in Santa Cruz, basically four years rent in Santa Cruz bought me a house in Southern yeah. New Mexico. And, and, you know, why did I do this? Well, because I know that the rent's just going to keep going up and, 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 and I want to, I want to bet that the rent is going to keep going up. And, and what's the way that I bet that by buying a house. So, so really there it, there's a huge component of CPI inflation, which is shelter. And if you're a renter or a homeowner, you're on opposite sides of that trade. You have you have opposite positions on what's happening with that index. If 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 I'm a homeowner, I win if inflation goes up. Yeah. Now that is a little weird, and it's weird because. You know, when I first started studying the history of money, one thing that really gave me a lot of thought when I was new to this stuff is, you know, the the way that we talk about inflation, it's like inflation is always bad. Well, inflation is not necessarily bad for everybody. There's some people who want inflation. For example, farmers. Farmers love inflation, (laughs) right? Because why? Why do farmers love inflation? Well, because farmers are always in debt. And if there's inflation whatever that means exactly. That means the value of money is going down, which means your debts are worth less, right? So, you know, there's, there's ways in which inflation as a, as a, as a, has a class character and, and different classes in society could be long or short inflation. So, so that's the problem with the idea that everybody experiences a single inflation rate, right? It's less of the geography question that we talked about before, because they can deal with that. The the deeper issue is the class problem, which sure. is that which is that there are some people who are long it and some people who are short it. But what's but what's curious, right, is that the same people in society, like the boomers, the homeowners, or whatever, they're the ones who are wringing their hands about inflation, but they actually don't care about one of the major determinants of what counts as inflation in the policy, which is rent. They're not paying it. They're, they're, yeah. they're imaginarily paying it to themselves, but it's totally irrelevant to them, right? So, so, so I think there's, you know, there's also an element of false consciousness in, in the way that people, that people relate to 
to to inflation and, and these are you can call it being sore winners you can call all sorts i mean i would say it's, it's inter- i mean like the last i mean so i guess you know, at this point like let's get into kind of the general thoughts of mmt mm-hmm. you know some people will say oh we are playing more we're getting more feet wet in the mmt world and what happened you know it's like you played with deficits you got inflation it's bad but but let's just talk about kind of the politics of and the discourse around inflation everyone's saying inflation is bad and as you say in the past like especially in the past because farmers aren't a majority of the population it really hasn't been since like the bimetallism boom that you had farmers you know real pro-inflation contingency when getting brian you know cross gold it's hard to imagine anyone saying this anymore and i would i would say i mean this this gets a i mean i guess this gets into like my own theory about boomers which is just that in a lack of hope in the society and everything, our politics is controlled by like nostalgia, which is just to say, like inflation. If you talk, if you ask economists, what is the cost of inflation? They'll say, oh, there's there's some small menu costs, there's some small frictions, but I would say to normal schmucks or something. Like, what is the cost of inflation? It's the fact that you get sad because a candy bar used to cost 25 cents and now it costs $1.92. And like now you, it, one, it just gets your heartbreak a little bit every time you go to the corner store. And two, it means that your head is filled with more and more irrelevant knowledge of past prices. Mm-hmm. And boomers are just driven insane by nostalgia. And what I would like, and I think that's so much of boomer anti-inflation uh it's not really about material deprivation as much as it is just like a psychic break of how much they hate seeing prices change yeah yeah i mean i think that is important because because there's a question of affect right there's a question about feelings and yeah. and and how do how do changes in prices make you feel and how does the way that you feel change your behavior in such a way that might feed back into what's happening with prices, right? This, this I think, is important. And, and just to say one thing, like, boomers had the best of all worlds for so long. Yeah. They had nominal CPI inflation, was nice and flat, and then their asset inflations went up, but were disguised in this inflation. They never had to yes. see the actual CPI rise. So they had all the cake and never had to actually even show in the receipt. They ate. Yes, yes. So, yeah. so I mean, so you brought up the moon tea. I mean, you know, I actually think it's, it's really too bad that I think that the MMT ship is going to go down a little bit with this inflation stuff. This, this was, I mean, as much as I'm, you know, known partly as a critic of MMT. I mean, I wrote a book about why MMT's story about money is wrong, but they're, but they're actually right about inflation. And it's, and it's actually, it's actually too bad. I think that they're going to kind of take the L on this one. And, and, and the reason that they're going to is because they are unwilling to take it to the kind of more politically radical place of saying, look, it's about class struggle. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's not part of their rhetoric, but they're actually right. Right. You know, so, so Ro- Rohan Gray, you know, so I, I think in this thread that, that that we that we had, you know, you know, wrote no love lost between me and Rohan Gray, really don't like each other, you know. But 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 somebody posted a screen cap of him saying in the middle of last year, you know, something like, "There's no such thing as inflation. There's only prices in specific sectors." And he's right about that. That's right. They have the right theory of inflation. There is no such thing as inflation. There is only a a bunch of prices in the economy. And one thing that could be happening in the economy is a positive feedback loop. And and what I mean by that is, is, is very simple. It's just, 
you are engaged in a complex web of economic dependency with other people. You buy stuff from people and you sell stuff from people. And in order to reproduce yourself as the person that you are, you need to continue buying stuff and selling stuff from the same people. Now, what happens when the person that you buy stuff from comes and says, well, there's inflation, so I have to raise my prices? Well, either you eat it or you turn around to the person that you sell stuff to and you say, well, there's inflation, so I gotta raise my prices. And this can just go around in a circle forever until... As long as there's not some guy at the end holding the bag. That's right. That's right. If, if there is a closed loop, and I, there was a cycle. I mean, I guess my, my working theory is like, there was a cycle before Volcker, you know, and now we've just created the idea that, like, yeah, wage growth doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, right. Like, that's, part of, that's part of the issue. That, that's part yeah. of it. I mean, that's, like, I guess, like, too. But, but, but I think, I think yeah. Chris Smalls is kind of challenging that theory. Try, trying, trying to. to. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so, I mean, yeah. So, so, I mean, we should be clear. One of the things that you can sell is labor, right? That's one of the most important. So, so the question is whether you just force labor to eat to eat inflation or whether whether labor can go around and say well our costs are increasing so you should give us a raise now that scares the hell out of the central bankers because they in whatever recesses of their minds they're capable of thinking about reality right they say oh well that just makes the spiral go around right it just it just goes around <laughs> so there's like, there's like the ref at some like it's like they're like a boxing ref and they're seeing two people just like do nothing but low blows to each other they need to like break it up or something yeah. like they have no solution well, really well, because because what's going to happen if they don't is that there will be a legitimacy crisis in society and in the government in the institutions that govern society and that's yes. what they don't want because they are the institutions now so so this is why i mean i say let there be inflation you know because i'm yeah. I would like there to be a legitimacy crisis in the governing institutions of society. I, I don't think they deserve to be legitimate. This is what distinguishes me, I think, from 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 the reformists who I'm sometimes enemies of, sometimes friends with, you know. Um, but but you know, but so so in, in you know, inflation is not just there's no such thing as the value of money in some kind of like simple mechanical sense. What there is is a complex network there is a graph as mathematicians call it that describes the economy and there can be positive feedback dynamics in this complex structure in which prices go around in a circle and they go up and up and up and up until what happens until until we find out who's boss and when we find out who's boss then it stops i was gonna ask you i mean i I think i might like I was like, if you were an advisor in 1971, <laughs> you know, what would you have, like, what have you recommended? Like, because, like, the thing is, the spiral was happening. Everyone was just panicking. Yeah. And in the end, the people won were the, you know, the neoliberals. But, like, I guess there's two questions. One, would you have had some clever guru hack or would you have said, I'm leaving, just let the place burn down and, like, hope the neolibs wouldn't win? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the issue here and this kind of goes back to some of this like expert discourse and stuff we were talking about i mean i'm inclined to think that society depends for its reproduction about hiding the truth of what it is i mean and 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 this is this is what accounting does right and 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 this is why it's important i mean 
in, in some of my work, I mean, I, I criticize the, you know, those of us who are left of the reformists have often inherited a kind of value theory framework from Marx. And the problem is that when you read Marx, he gives you the impression that value is something that is kind of objective. I mean, it's kind of things can't help but be like that. Um, there's there's this, you know, objective imminent law of capitalist circulation or whatever. The The, the problem is that it's 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 kind of arbitrary and 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 the decisions that accountants make change what value is in in ways that when you start learning about it is kind of like hilariously arbitrary i mean it's 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 made up in this way that that makes it hard to believe in any kind of objective laws about about the capitalist system and and you know and and economy you know accounting has to do that because and and this is a problem that I'm so a little bit of a plug. I don't know when this episode is coming out. It probably might be after it already started. But I'm giving a yeah. I'm giving a seminar at the center for what is it called the new center for research and practice. I teach there, and and this is one of the things I'm going to think about in my seminar. Is it, it kind of goes back to like to to Rousseau and the idea of the general will, right? The the idea that that there exists something that everybody wants that's kind of the objective interests of society. That's yeah. what we call growth. Growth is what everybody wants. Now, the you know, the problem is in order to measure growth, we have to measure inflation. <laughs> and 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 so and so in order to say that there is such a thing as growth and that's what everybody wants, and and we measure it by by saying what inflation is, we we have to say that there exists this ideal person. Um, who experiences this rate of inflation, and 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 what is what happens when we do that is is that we're hiding away the fact that a lot of social processes are zero sum relations. You know, if 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 I'm making money from selling the water from my swimming pool, that can only happen to the extent that there's this guy dying outside of, the, of yeah. dehydration, right? I mean, I mean, so and and we have very it's 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 not just that we have different inflation rates it's that we have mutually contradictory inflation rates right so 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 this is it's it's this emphasis on contradiction is what's valuable about the about the Marxist legacy beneath all of this value theory baggage. Yeah, I mean, uh, you you talk. I mean, your dissertation. Uh, it's it's the the Marx part is is fantastic. But I mean, there's a very definitive. I mean, a connection you can make between the neoclassicals and the Marxians, which is to say, they each have basically saying like, "Don't worry, there is an answer." And if you ask the neoclassicals, yeah. you go there. There are utils, and the utils you can count them. They're great. The market reveals them, and we have this big GDP. The GDP is true. The GDP is good and like, you know, consequentialism for the win. Everything's great. Yes, the Marxians, they say there is something called value. Value is inherent in every person and worker and it gets stolen from you. And really, as long as we minimize the amount it gets stolen from you, it's good, you know, and that's two ends there. One is the liberal end of like, just make sure you increase that GDP at all costs. And the Marxian end is just... I mean, I would say inevitably, if you really pursue it towards a pastoralist end of just kind of like a kind of hobbit like decline into smallness. I don't know. That's I the, the I think the most galaxy brain Marxists I know end up in that kind of fetishization. I, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I would say, like, honestly, what is different? Those two is to say, like, 
what do you want? I, I don't know. The world is weird. The world is, it's very hard to optimize for one variable. Right. Yeah. So, so I think you're, you're spot on to say that the problem and, and the way that the Marxists are too close to their supposed enemies is the idea that there exists a solution to, to yeah. the question. Whereas part of what I'm trying to say is that, is that economics is an ill-posed problem. That actually, in, in order to even pose the problem in the first place, we have to make some normative assumptions and we have to kind of hide them away. And, and, and this is a point that's made in a very different register from the way that I would make it um, by Nitzan and Bichler in, in Capitalist Power, which is a book you might be familiar with. Um, I don't agree with them about everything. I don't agree with the historical narrative that they have in that book. Um, I'm unqualified to assess some of their more technical claims about economics, but I, but I think that they're spot on about, about this point, which is just what you were well, saying. There's utils and there's value, and these are both substance theories, and they assume that there's, an Ill, that there's a well-posed problem about what economics measures, but in fact there isn't, because really what there is is power, and and now we need a theory of power and we need a theory of the way that 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 all attempts to measure economic phenomena as objectively existing are necessarily going to repress power relations. And that, I think, is like really important. I mean, I, I I'll, I'll plead guilty to being a little bit of a hobbit theorist myself. I mean, I, I think that we need to do well, you're currently living middle nowhere. New yeah, Mexico. we need, we need to do less of everything. I mean, I'm, I know do do less. I mean, I mean, I'm not a degrowther for the reason that I think that growth is not a well-posed category. And I, I got, I made some enemies on the internet a few years ago by yelling at some people who were writing some of this stuff. Cause I was, and I was I was more of an, in an MMT kind of phase of my thinking at that point, but but I still agree with this, right? Which is that the the problem with growth that with the degrowthers that they assume that growth is real and that we need less of it. I mean, it, it's 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 not real, and in and in some ways, if all you want is degrowth, if we measured growth in the same way that we did in the mis, in the mid century, there wouldn't be any of it. I mean, we haven't had the only reason that we have growth is because we changed the way that we count it. And so if you yeah. if, if we went back to 1960 uh, national income accounting conventions, there wouldn't be any growth. OK, so mission accomplished. Right. So 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 my beef with the degrowthers is to say, well, actually, you know, we don't really have any growth. And, and this gets into the way that we measure the financial sector. And all. so so really the problem is not that we have growth and we're burning more carbon. The problem is that we have stagnant growth and accelerating carbon usage. Uh, and, and so yeah, that's I mean, it's there is a very like simple path that I think a lot of people would say we want to put everyone on, which is just you grow up. Inflation is kept you know, kind of at a solid rate in your life. Eventually, you're a homeowner. You know, you have 2.5 kids that go off to college and you retire with a retirement that depreciates right as you die or something. But like the general thought is like that's it's as you design society, you should know kind of the way it it grows, it plumps, it, it kind of matures. And it's it's a very and that's why everyone says like or at least a lot of people. And honestly, I'd say not just the right wing want to see like return to 1950s uh you know white picket fence abundance mm-hmm. i mean this is obviously kind of a right wing cultural thing but honestly yes like the pk people and they kind of dream about 1950s kind of wage relations it's like oh yeah we're so close we just go back to that and like honest and if you talk about the idea of like oh keep inflation nice and flat it's this idea of like as you grow the world should be like legible and predictable 
as opposed to like weird and growing and blossoming in strange ways. And I am like, I guess the thing is on one hand, I get it. Like, I think, I think inflation or kind of just general increases breaks my mind as much as anyone else. Like it, it, it's, it's, uh, it can be, uh, like hurtful to see something that used to be less than a buck be more than a buck. But like, I need to embrace, like, I don't want to live in a dying world. I want to live in a world that changes and grows. And, and I think people don't really have an appetite for that kind of blossoming anymore. <laughs> I'll settle for human survival at this point, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's funny, I mean, yeah. You know, well, I guess that's the thing. I, I think the only way we survive is to grow yeah, to be yeah, weirder. Yeah. I don't think we'll survive um, through prudence and thoughtful navigation. We're not that smart. We we need to well, power up and okay. Be I'm, I'm going to push back on this a little bit because there's different kinds sure. of prudence. I mean, I mean, I mean, thinking thinking that you can solve a complex system and and you can deal with all the aggregation problems and you can you can manage the system through technocratic expertise i mean that's not what i call prudence i mean what i what i call prudence is the fear of god <laughs> you know i mean we need to be terrified and and yeah. and realize that we can't solve the system and and so the question is how do we how do we over invest what what looks like an irrational over investment into hedges against against acts of God, as they're called. I mean, I, that we're now we're getting into the theology stuff, which is a whole other conversation. I don't want to, you know, confuse things. But. Okay, okay, so let's go back to, I guess, here is you're talking like, like about like kind of, you're hoping for an inflationary spiral, which will take down the whole system. I don't, I don't know that I'm will... hoping for it, but but I mean, I mean, it, it, it's not, it, it wouldn't be, I mean, think about the student debt thing, which has now become a crisis. I mean, if we just, if we just added two zeros to all the prices everywhere, then we, student debt wouldn't be a problem anymore. Yeah, it's one way. Yeah, it's, it's one way to solve it. But I also okay. If I am looking back in the last two years with you know twenty twenty hindsight, I kind of saw a lot of this going, which is the fact that like we finally learned to kind of be less afraid of deficits out speaking yeah, out loud, yeah. and that's a very good thing. It means a lot of weird, cool stuff is now we can like play with a lot more tools. Yeah. And the MMT folks have always said, okay, you know. The, our limits are not about the money printers. Yeah. We have the money printers. Our limits are, can you uh, use novel tools to stop inflation? Yeah. And I said, hey, Nito, in the next two years, we're going to get a lot of innovative ideas about anti-inflationary tools. Yeah. And this is like everything across the board from, I mean, their their favorite is the you know jobs guarantee. But I would also say you know, land value tax is an anti-inflationary tool. Uh, you, the learner colander uh, map market anti-inflation plan you talk about you know gazillion you know uh, currency these are all kind of, I mean there's a whole space of weird stuff you could do and I thought we kind of get some appetite to do something novel and instead we kind of just like started our car going and then we realized like we have no plan and I think that like I am really disappointed that there weren't more gurus trying to get something strange happening here yeah you know i mean i mean again i mean my my take on this i mean you know the mmt line is well you know the what is it that constrains you know uh, it's not a budget constraint it's an inflation constraint and what and it's real resources that cause inflation well what they're missing is legitimacy legitimacy is a constraint there is a price of legitimacy and mmt 
want to assume that legitimacy isn't a problem um so that they can you know and but so i mean i mean and and they're they're like right about 95 percent of what they say it's the but it's the five percent that they don't want to touch it's like the third rail for them which is this legitimacy problem that's what you know i mean it's clear it should be clear to any thinking person that austerity causes inflation why are we having inflation well because we've stripped public infrastructure for decades and decades through this austerity stuff. And and that's why we can't, I mean, look, this is a pretty, this is a beginner level epidemic, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is not, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean I'm not trying to like, you know, downplay all of the suffering. You know, I've, I have dear friends who have lost family members and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that sucks, but like, this is nothing. This is, this is nothing. And, and, yeah. and the, and, and the fact, you know, it's revealed that our systems are incredibly fragile and and they're breaking and that's causing inflation and why well it's because of austerity i mean it's because of decades of austerity so if if we wanted inflation to go down we should spend more money not not just on anything but we should spend more money on 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 developing hedges against supply chain disruptions and all kinds of i mean you know pay pay people to rip up their lawns and grow vegetable gardens in them and stuff and then you're not going to have any problems you know get everybody raising chickens and stuff i mean i mean i mean but the problem is you can't tell people to do that why well because you're changing the american way of life that's not what americans do americans have lawns they don't have chickens yeah. and vegetables right and 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 you can't do that for reasons that are just beyond the realm of of what people who are invested in making a claim to expert knowledge about economics can even talk about because you're talking about i mean i mean now we're talking about white supremacy right i mean why yeah. why do americans have lawns and not chickens it's because of white supremacy i mean uh, we'll, we'll leave it to the as an exercise to the reader <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever, yeah you know so I mean I I, th- I step back I guess from lawns yeah. uh, from I mean I th- I think like one question is kind of like the MMT folks would always say like oh you know fiat is the way it works but there is like a key question which is why in the past did people use you know yeah. you know rare species instead of fiat and the reason is they lacked legitimacy and power to administer currency in a in a kind of in a more modern sense. And like, and I, I guess I suppose, like, I mean, I, I guess my question, like, in a lot of ways, like, if you look back at like John Law, like now, it seems like John Law in seventeen twenty or so was kind of like he had kind of the right guru ideas about the policy of the future, but like the world wasn't ready for it yet, and it kind of blew up in its face. Even jobs guarantee there is an institutional power structure you need to make it plausible. I guess the idea is, you know, you you talk throughout your dissertation about kind of, I guess, like myth making of different sovereigns and kind of what are the kind of basis of how they sell people on kind of the root of what makes, I guess you could say what makes money work in a very limited sense. But like in the past, money was rare species. And, you know, really up through Bretton Woods, money can continue to be connected with rare species and the you know the modern monetary folks would say you know that oughtn't be so but that was a very powerful myth people would not believe you if you didn't take that to be what you sold people on because like like that's that's what that's just the truth right yeah so i mean this is um you know an aspect of the argument that that people have picked up on 
maybe maybe this will turn out to have been my main idea although it's it's in some ways to me is just the starting place of what's interesting but is the is the theory of the barons as i as i call it so you know i mean you know there's this there's this tradition about money that maybe is epitomized by Keynes uh declaring that gold is a barbarous relic um and 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 there's you know there's the theory that has kind of come into vogue now is is the credit theory of money that says that well money is really just a it's really just debt. It's really just an obligation. And, and you can, you can make this debt out of anything. And so why would you make it out of silver and so on and so forth? As in, um, you know, Christine Dasan is, is, is an, uh, kind of probably the most notable recent proponent of this theory. Um, but, of, but of course it, and, and, and some people, you know, I've, I've had interactions on Twitter where, I've, I've talked to, I've, I've, I've talked to people who are, you know, big fancy, like even central bankers or whatever. And, and if you say that there's a difference between money and credit, they'll immediately, you know, they'll just block you. They'll just stop talking to you. It's like, and it's, it's one of the, it's like, and this is, is kind of astounded me, you know, because, um, you know, for the periods that I study and the, and, and the periods that, that I'm most familiar with, I mean, I, I, um, I've been trying to kind of assemble a story about the history of money really from, um, from the earliest coinages in the seventh century BC, kind of all the way, uh, to the present, but the, but the periods that I focus most on in my work so far have been the 14th and 16th centuries in, in England. Um, and, and in those periods, I mean, there's, there's a difference between money and credit, which is, which is that money is money. It's a coin and credit is a promise to pay the coin. I mean, and so to, to say, especially, I mean, what's funny is that a lot of these same people, forward a legal theory of money where they say that money is a creature of the law um it's it's defined into existence by the legal apparatus which is which is a less wrong claim i mean that is true to a large extent if not completely but but the law in this period was very clear that there is a difference between money and credit. So it's actually impossible if you know anything about history to claim both at once that money is a creature of the law and that money is credit. That doesn't stop people from doing it because, because most people, the people who they don't, they haven't, they haven't looked at the medieval period, you know, money is a coin and, 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 and credit is a promise to pay a coin. And the, and the reason that it matters is because if you're a baron, if you're a baron in England, um, you know, you might vary against the king. And if if all you have is your money, and this is money that you are receiving as rents from, uh, you know, from your tenants, if all you have is paper that you have to go to the king in order to redeem, well, you can't, you can't use that to fund a war against him. Um and, and so that's the reason that money is made of silver is because, is because the barons have the silver and they can they can take it where and it's recognizable as foreign exchange now this is more this i claim is more than a historical curiosity um as recent events have borne out right i mean what we're witnessing you know putin doesn't want you know he's he's stuck uh because his money has to go through clearing houses that are run by his geopolitical opponents and that kind of dynamic is very illustrative of the reasons that money is made of of precious metal in in the past precious metal because 
important socially important stakeholders don't trust the sovereign and they and they don't trust there to be a central bank where you're going to keep all the foreign exchange reserves and the central bank is going to manage the foreign and so they demand as a condition of legitimacy of the state direct access to foreign exchange uh uh in the money directly and and that's what precious metal money is is about there is a like there's a big difference in living in you know a better part of a thousand years ago and now which is just like right now you say what are the nations of the world and like everyone kind of says like like points to these are the sovereigns and like there's this kind of and i think when you say like what did the mmt folks take for granted is they just take the like the kind of basis of sovereignty as absolute and you know kind of unchanging and like what like what what are they speaking to they're speaking to a policy director who is an autocratic you know guru working for one of these places and there are limitations but all within this kind of just you know very formalized structure of sovereigns and you know and the you know as you as you say like it didn't used to be this way like it's like you say you want the government says who you know you have to back it up somehow and i don't know like it'd be like what would it take to kind of have a crisis legitimacy with a modern state i don't know what that would look like well it's not gonna look good but um <laughs> yeah i think you're right but the, but the you know it might not look good either way so uh you know <laughs> uh, yeah no i mean i mean the, this is a this is a, an important question and it's one that I mean, I've written some about it in my work already, but it's also something that I'm, I'm kind of trying to think through in my current research. So the seminar that I mentioned earlier, um, we're going to be looking at the history of interstate interstate political order. Um, uh, so we're going to be, you know, in, in, in typical Colin Drum fashion, I mean, we're going to be starting in ancient Greece and, and looking at the, the Oracle of Delphi. You know, so the, the Oracle of Delphi functions, uh, or sorry, sorry, features very prominently in, in a lot of these stories that we're familiar with. But it's it's like a little unclear, like what does it actually do? You know, why do they have all these pa- all this power? Um, and there, you know, and, and there's a, it's it's an institution in which inter- the legitimacy of the interstate or interpolis, I guess we should say, interpolis order is negotiated. And 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 one of the things that you might consult the Oracle about is about the legitimacy of, so, so the word legitimacy is interesting, right? We use it to apply to states, but there's another usage of the word, which is the legitimacy of birth, right? So, so are you a bastard or, or are you legitimate? And this distinction matters because it changes whether or not you can inherit. So this this is one of the things that the Oracle of Delphi um, was concerned with was 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 to tell you whether or not your birth is legitimate and thus whether your inheritance is legitimate. And it, and it's also one of the fundamental bases of power of the Catholic Church. Um, yeah. So so you know in medieval Europe, all royal marriages are incestuous. Um, they're they're all within the, the 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 limitations of incest, and so basically, any time there's going to be a royal marriage, you pretty much almost always have to get a dispensation for incest from the church, and so and so the church is able to 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 have a kind of veto power over the inheritance of sovereignty, right? So so you know, there's sovereignty is inherited. And inheritance is subject to the problem of legitimacy. Um, so, so we're gonna we're gonna look at we're gonna look at Greece. We're gonna look at the Catholic Church, and, and then we're gonna move forward to uh, modern stuff that I'm a little bit less 
familiar with. So I'm going to, I'm, I am I like to challenge myself in my teaching and not just teach stuff I already know. So we're going to, we're going to look at the Treaty of Westphalia, um, mm. which is, you know, something that's, you know, you always hear about Westphalian sovereignty, but like, what exactly does that mean is, is a little, and, and we'll, and we'll look at like the Congress of Vienna, which is basically, you know, Napoleon shattered Europe and they tried to put it back together. And, and that was the Congress of Vienna. And then we're going to look at like the Bretton Woods institutions. So I'm, so I'm, I'm trying to think through and I haven't done I haven't done all this reading yet, so we'll see what I come up with after I do it. But but yeah, I mean, but Westphalia is like the first time that like that a state would ever say like it's not the only state. It was the first time you ever had a kind of horizontal world of of competing states. If you call them competing, yeah, I mean, you know, the the thing with Westphalia, and this this is not introduced with Westphalia, but Westphalia confirms it is the principle that the ruler dictates the religion of the subjects so so basically you can have a protestant country or a catholic country etc so so really i mean westphalia is about the negation of the church as the heir of the empire as as constituting a legal framework within which questions about the international order are negotiated um Sure. And so and so I think that's an important question for us for us today is, you know, because there's, you know, I mean, yeah, there's there's states that have their own monies and all of this kind of stuff. But there's also there's also an international order. And and, and to kind of to kind of loop around to the beginning of our conversation, I mean, I mean, one of the main things that our what we have today instead of the church is the IMF and the World Bank and these other Bretton Woods institutions. And and they determine the legitimacy of states. How? Well, by saying whether or not they're delivering growth. And right, I mean, if if you if you tank the economy, by which we mean you make growth go down, then you're illegitimate. And if you get good growth, then you're legitimate. And and these institutions also uh, uh you know, help produce the frameworks through which growth is measured. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, accounting creates frameworks through which we measure legitimacy, and 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 that is the that's the software of the international political order. So I'm uh, so. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we learn from the seminar that I'm getting ready to give on. Because I'm giving the seminar because I don't understand this yet, and I want to understand <laughs> yeah, it, so, so I'm trying to think about it. It's a good problem. I mean, I, I think when you talk about kind of just these these different, you know, I guess you call it units of account, and then also the kind of, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, le- you know, uh, different government sovereigns trying to gain credibility, and yeah, as you say, like you know, in the past it could have been about a religion, and now it is it has become about kind of a certain contract that we will deliver you the right kind of growth and that is more or less what undergirds the credibility and there's different units of count we talk about here and i suppose like if you talk about like kind of the the pk view would be let's talk more about labor markets you know and let's talk more about like labor tightening and instead of the traditional growth we'll give you tighter labor markets and i mean i'd say unfortunately in the last couple of years i think we learned like that's not seemingly a huge political winner the amount of people who love tighter labor markets, which have created real wage growth, seem to be swamped out by people whining about, you know, a labor shortage. And, you know, I guess that is also a creature of institutions, media, blah, 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 blah. But just politically, it lost, you know, and that's 
And uh, I guess I guess in I guess like just in general, I would say if there is a credibility of institutions going up, like if I were really creating a unit of account, it would include basically just dignified living. Can you can you create a combination of labor markets as well as cost of living, just habitation and everything such that people can more or less you know, work earn get what they want and live in a good place and like just right right now we're failing across the board in so many ways and we're really failing by design but and i guess some people and i guess you might call reformists would say like can we change what our units account are i mean william vickery tried to like redefine what full employment was to create more about like you know making a living wage with a certain labor market tightness and I guess that's that's it's it's certainly a view, but I guess you know there has to be so, like in order to undergird what this sovereign is, like what what are your thoughts on what are the future of like kind of what is what undergirds credibility going going forward? Well, I, I have thoughts about what I'd like and what I think is likely to happen, and those are probably pretty different. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, mean, you give both. I mean. You know, I, I agree that the construction of economic indices should be made into an object of of democratic contest, right? I mean, and 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 so and so I this is part of why I'm hostile to claims of expert knowledge, right? I mean the 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 expert stuff. Oh, oh, we already accounted for that. We have fancy models. All of that is just ways to hide the fact that there are like fundamental conceptual issues in and that these fundamental conceptual issues involve questions of zero sum social antagonism right because yeah. because what what really makes a government legitimate what late what makes a government legitimate is the degree to which it can successfully reproduce social inequality right what 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 do people hate they hate it when their servants get uppity Right. I mean, yeah. that is inflation. It's inflation when your servants get uppity. And, and you know, the the question, you know, the, the, the question is, you know, whether we can achieve Hegel's dream of, of a society that understands itself to be what it is and or not. I mean, I I think that's a nice thought. I'm a little bit in terms of what I how I think the world really works. I'm a little bit pessimistic about that. I in a, in a way, I think that. You know, you you say whether people are getting what they want. Well, at least in the world that I come from, people want a lot of stuff that I don't think they should have. I think that their I think that their desires are bad, and and you know, desire you know for lawns or for for plastics and for for little little you know little uh, Polaris like go-karts or whatever that they ride around the trails and crush all the plants and stuff you know i mean i mean we live in an incredibly destructive society and we've been taught to want things in a way that successfully reproduces that society so i'm so i'm not sure that just giving people what they want is is enough you know well not just not just we, they're not just taught but in fact like you talk about like you know lawns and parking yeah. we create institutions where there's invisible subsidies <laughs> to get our lawns and our parking spaces and we don't even realize free parking it's it's a massive you know machine of 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 government coercion to get you that free parking yeah. and like and we just take it for granted and i think the thing is in a world 
I, I think there is a lot of subterfuge in that kind of you know, magical, you know, obfuscation to make you not realize that people are doing these things to you. And I guess the problem is when, if you talk about, you know, lawns and parking or, you know, hierarchies of white supremacy, when you give someone something for nothing and then take it away, they get really pissed off. Yeah, and that's, right. that's bad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When you, when you, t- when you tell people that they can't have what they want or they can't have what they've always had, they get mad and they get violent yeah. and they get, yeah. they get genocidally violent, ecocidally violent. Right. So, so, yeah. so for me, I mean, this is the problem with empty appeals to democracy is that democracy assumes that, that what people that people deserve to want what they want and the only question is how do we negotiate between them i think i think there's a deeper question which is about the social institutions through which people learn to want and and the question of you know if we're going to survive on planet earth um people in global north societies need to learn to want very different things than what they currently want and and they they are going to find that experience violent and traumatic. And I don't really see any other way around that. So I, I don't, I mean, that, that may very well be an impossible process. I mean, how do we build cultural institutions in order to, I mean, here's, here's the real Hobbit theorists coming out. I mean, at the, <laughs> right. I, yeah. mean, I mean, you know, but, but if, if, if all we do is give people what we want, then none of it matters because we're all going to die. And so, so what do you do with that? You know, I mean, that's a deep. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess my my world, I guess my optimistic worldview is that we can divide up some of the zero sum battles and then some of the positive sum like desserts, and just say, hey, here's your here's your positive sum, you know, you know, treats, you know, eat this, it's good, and you can actually have a lot of good things in life, but like some things are going to be a real drag and we're actually going to have to take down a lot of people who are going to fight you hard, but at least be explicit about it. And I, we don't have, we don't have the language for it. I mean, you even talk about, I mean, you talk about, you know, kind of, you know, labor issues and something, which I think are only one small part of what inequality is in the modern world. But like you talk about people, they fight for higher nominal wages. It's like, wow, that's like, I mean, you're kind of, you have to think a lot bigger. And I think the problem is our entire language of articulation doesn't make it easy to kind of say, this is the world I want. Yeah. yeah. But the, I mean, so as hard as that problem is, right. And here, I think we can kind of maybe, maybe, maybe wrap this up. I mean, the, you know, the, that problem is hard, but we should face, we, we have to face up to that problem. And, 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 and the problem is in talking about the world in qualitative and concrete in particular ways. And, and the enemy of that project is economic abstraction aggregation, right? I mean, as much as possible, we need to stop talking about wages, inflation, growth, Etc. We need to talk about things that you can look, reach out into the world and see and touch, and and think about how how we want those things to be and how they need to be. And as much as possible, we need to stop talking about abstractions. And 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 that well, that makes the project of governing through monetary policy impossible. Uh, in which case I say, good, well, well and fine. So let's stop governing through monetary policy and, and, and let's govern some other way instead. So, 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 you know, no matter what we want, how we think decisions should be made, um, which, which I, which I think a lot of people who, 
otherwise agree about a lot of values and stuff might disagree about um but i but i think maybe like a, the minimal program is 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 that we need to get away from having faith in abstractions and aggregations and we need to talk about stuff that really exists and and we need and we need to do it yesterday and yeah. and and so and so that's you know so so that's why i think that you know that's why i'm saying we we don't actually need to become experts so that we can argue with Mason about whether or not imputed rents are calculated correctly. Imputed rents don't exist. There's no real cash flows, okay? So so the only reason we would ever need to talk about whether it's calculated or not correctly is if we believe in this abstraction. I, I think we just need to, we need to get rid of it. Let's talk about stuff that exists, talk about stuff you can touch and 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 let's try to face up to our problems in in, in kind of a more rigorous way in, in that in that and with that method. Yeah. So, uh, and I guess uh, you mentioned the seminar. What, what's uh, what, just plug one more time? Well, when's this all happening? And when can yeah. So this, this one starts on May twenty eighth. Um, is at the okay. New Center for Research and Practice. So I teach there. I also teach um, uh, privately, um, just for my own students. And so if you're, yeah, if you're interested in what I've been talking about today, you can get in touch on Twitter, uh, drum underscore Colin. Um, you can email me. I, I teach classes for a very reasonable fee. I have a Patreon. You can subscribe on Patreon. Anyway, um, you can you can you can pay me to support this thinking and to and to think about it yourself and 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 so get in touch if that interests you. Yeah, and your dissertation is is uh, free on the internet yeah, yeah. Uh, and definitely worth and you reading. You can read that. It's four hundred pages about coins and Shakespeare and tragedy and all kinds of other stuff. So, <laughs> I was I was like, it is it is a lot of like fun connections throughout. It's it's a it's a it's a great document. Well, that's you know that's why I don't you know you're you're not supposed to connect everything to everything else. You're supposed to you're supposed to talk about one thing, and that's why I don't fit it in academia. But 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 you may find it interesting nonetheless. <laughs> Yeah, and it's been fun. I mean, I think yeah, we probably could talk for uh, forever, but uh, I, I think I think we got we, we bit off some parts of this. So I think it's been it's been interesting. Absolutely, it's been great. Thanks for having me on. We have been talking to Colin Drum all about money, housing, and much more. Apologies that the plug for that seminar series is now well past due to the summer hiatus of the program. And before we wrap up, I just want to pay a quick tribute to the Berkeley theorist Thomas Lord, who died this past month, uh, who has long been a dream guest for the show, and it's, it's had been quite a, quite a bit that uh, this will not happen. But he's one of these people I, I have a genuine uh, respect for, and so uh, may we long remember him. You can find all episodes of this radio program at the website seedthecat.org. This is a presentation of Keizer Shu, Stanford. <laughs> <laughs>